Buddha and pumpkin pie could have been the title of these sermons as we look at chapter 8. Several years ago, maybe the last few years, we were visiting, you can put those pictures up there uh, so people can picture Buddha and pumpkin pie and think about how these two things go together. Uh, A few years ago, we were visiting uh, back in Pittsburgh, and we had gone to a friend's house of ours. Uh, This gentleman was a Christian. His wife was a Buddhist. And on the mantle uh, in their house, there was a statue of Buddha. And while we were gathered there, I think we had lunch there or something, he said, do you want some pumpkin pie? Well, who doesn't want pumpkin pie? Of course. And Instead of going into the refrigerator or going into the counter on the kitchen, he went to the mantle in his living room and probably muttered something the way he is sometimes sarcastic. He's not going to be eating this and takes the pie off of the mantle and brings it over to us. And he had explained that his wife, who was a Buddhist, had put that out there this morning as an offering or a sacrifice to her Buddhist or Buddha uh, idol. And uh, I thought, me and Val thought to ourselves and talked about it afterwards, this might be the closest we get to or have been to food being offered to an idol and thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. Um, and as I think through, think through that, it, it made me think through, you know, living with others can create difficult situations. Situations that we're not really comfortable with. Uh, situations that we might never put ourselves in, but all of a sudden we have to, we have to make this decision. We have to, to uh, you know, make, make this choice. We did eat the pumpkin pie and it was good. Um, but it made me think, wouldn't it be great if your spiritual life was just between you and God? It was just, just me, and, me and the Lord. I don't have to worry about other people. But that's not reality. Look, look around you. Look at the people sitting next to you, in front of you. You're, you're living your Christian life with others. Uh, we're, not, we're not living a life that's just me and the Lord. They, these people are a part of your spiritual life, and they need you, and you need them in your life. And so the decisions that we make actually have impacts with others around us. Uh, We're we're to be, what what Paul's going to bring out here, we're to be concerned about the choices we make and not just do I have the freedom to do this, but is this beneficial to other people? Our spiritual lives are not just about me and God. It's not not just, hey, this is my faith, whatever they want to do or whatever I want to do because I think I can do this. That's the way I'm going to live. Now, I don't want to downplay the, the personal, individual elements of our relationship with God. That's, that's definitely there. But I want to emphasize that your relationship with God is only fully realized in your relationship with other people. God created a community, a church, plural, with, with, with multiple believers to be lived out together, not just hey, we're, we're just one individual sitting in a pew and then we go home and, and we don't interact with each other. We don't have any concern for one another. No, he's called out a people to himself. 
And your mission now is to bring glory to God as you share the gospel and your life with believers and non-believers. This, this is our mission. This is what we're called to. This is what a healthy church looks like. We are individual members brought together as a community of believers in Jesus Christ in order to, to expand our community, evangelism, and deepen our community in discipleship. That's, that's the aim of the church and here, as we look at 1 Corinthians 8, and as we've been looking all throughout 1 Corinthians, we get the benefit of learning from the Corinthians' failures. We, we can get the benefit of looking to see where, where they failed and where we can learn from that and grow from that. Paul has been addressing all kinds of issues within the church of Corinth. Have you picked up? They're, they're a messed up church. You picked up on that? But they're all going back in, as, I, as I understand this, to the same thing. They, they have failed to see how their personal walk with the Lord relates to one another. They're just viewing themselves as, as isolated Christians, isolated individuals, living the Christian life without any concern for their brothers and sisters. And so we've talked about divisions within the church because of personalities, um, failure to deal with sin within the church, marriage struggles, lawsuits among believers. I mean, over and over again, uh, we're, we're going through these issues, and Paul is going to address another issue here that speaks to the heart of, of living with one another in love. And really, his solution just echoes the words of Jesus himself. Love God, love others. This is what truly matters. What, 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 is, what have we been saying throughout these sermons? We must cling to what truly matters, the, the, the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that is lived out as we love God and love one another. So we're going to take three weeks to work through chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 this week, 4 to 6, and then 7 through 13 in a, in a, in a few weeks here. So today we're looking at verses 1 through th 3, and Paul introduces in, chapter, in verse number 1, now concerning food offered to idols. So he begins out saying, here's what we're going to talk about in this chapter, this issue that was raised in the church of Corinth. And the main issue is meat offered to idols permissible for Christians to eat. And particularly, as we see in verse 10, meat offered and, and eaten in the temple of an idol. Now, how do we, how do we bring the, their cultural background into our day and age? Ch the church in Corinth was a polytheistic culture. Big word, okay? Let's break it down. Theistic, okay? Belief in God. Poly, many. So a belief in many gods, might help out to think about atheistic, a belief in no gods, or what Christianity would believe, monotheistic, a belief in one God, which Paul is going to hammer in verse, verses 4 to 6. So you're talking about a society that has many gods, many idols, and temples to those idols where animals will be sacrificed, food will be sacrificed, uh, to appease these gods. And these, th th this meat from the animals would be used in social and religious meals. Uh, oftentimes in the temple, they would have, a, have some rooms on the side, some dining areas where, where you could gather and, and you could have a social gathering and eat in the idol of the temple. 
which really, I don't want to steal chapter 11's thunder, but uh, in chapter 11, when he talks about communion and the meal that they shared there, that kind of puts that in a little more context, that this was a societal thing that they would gather in meals and, and eat uh, as they worshiped their God. So same kind of idea there in the idolatrous temple that they would gather for a meal in celebration to their God. This, this meat oftentimes would be sold on the cheap, uh, maybe like out of the back door of the temple in the marketplace, so that uh, they, they would use, they would take what they could use and they would use that in the worship of the idol and then they would sell on the cheap the, the meat that could be sold and oftentimes for poor Christians, which many of these Christians would have been poor, uh, this might have been your only source of meat. Who likes meat? All right, a lot of hands go up. This might have been it. And, and if, as Adam had suggested last week, some of the issues they're dealing with uh, in chapter 10 or 7, when Paul's saying, hey, you know, don't get married because of what's going on. There, maybe if there was a famine happening, well, that makes this meat all the more important in their understanding. So we're talking about uh, real-life issues. Like, like, we don't have to think about what we're going to eat. Most of us go home to a refrigerator full of food, or we're going to go out for lunch somewhere, and that's not a problem, but maybe not so much the case in the society during that time, especially if you were poor. And then added to that, you have Christians in the church of Corinth who are perhaps part, a part of idol worship before they came to Christ. And, and so you can see where all these questions would come up. Can I? Can I eat this meat that's offered to an idol? Can I eat the meat in the idol's temple? And Paul's going to address this question, but there's more to it than just saying yes or no. And so, hence the reason we're going to look at this over three weeks. Uh, isn't it interesting in chapter 6 and verse number 20, it's kind of a side note, Paul focuses, notice what he says here. I, this just came to my mind. Uh, so glorify God in your body. Paul, Paul's, Paul's focused on not just the spiritual glorification of God as we worship him in, him in spirit and truth, but glorify God in your body. And then chapter 7, what does he talk about? He's talking about sex in chapter 8 he's talking about food maybe the the two biggest struggles physically in temptation in in the life of a person paul now addresses on the heels of telling us to glorify god in our bodies because god is concerned with, with the whole person spirit body before we really jump into this text a couple of things I want us to understand about God's word, particularly, particularly using God's word in everyday life. So we're talking about making decisions in life, some of which we're not sure which way to go on, and we have to come to God's word. And Paul's, Paul's going to uh, use the word of God in his answer, but first thing I want us to realize is the Bible is sufficient for all of life and is the sole authority for what we believe and how we live. There is no other authority in life that we can go to. 
All of life is an act of worship, and it only makes sense if we go to God and his word and what he's revealed to us to see how do we live this life? How do I think about this issue? Should a Christian be doing whatever it is that may, we may come across in our life? God's word is the only true authority. We need to go to it to evaluate these issues. Uh, and th- and this, is, this is a foundational truth for the church. We look to the word of God for what we do, for how we live. It is our authority. It is our source of truth. Secondly, the Bible is relevant for all peoples in all times. In every culture, the Bible is relevant. The Bible is not a list of every possible rule for every situation that could ever come up in every culture. It's not what you're going to find. Instead, it's a book about who? God himself. God is revealing himself to us in his word. And so in his word, we see, we see the heart of God interacting with different cultures in different times, in different places, which is why we say the Bible is a living book that can be applied to anywhere. So, so the person in Ukraine who's facing what they're facing today, the Bible is relevant to their situation just as much as it's relevant to our situation here in America. Now, God does give us some universal truths that are non-negotiables. It doesn't matter the time frame. It doesn't matter the culture that you're a part of. There are some non-negotiables, things like gender and sexual identity. The Bible's very clear on where our gender and sexual identity comes from at creation, when we're born. Racism, idolatry, drunkenness, these, these are other things the Bible is very clear on. It doesn't matter what culture you're in, where, what period of time you've lived in. These things are clearly addressed in God's word and are universal truths for all people. We might say that these are black and white issues. There's a right and wrong, clearly. Then there's issues in our culture and in other cultures where the Bible doesn't explicitly address Things that, that we might say, these are kind of like gray areas. Should a Christian be a part of this? Should the church be doing this? Well, I don't know. Christian A might not have a problem with participating in what, whatever, but Christian B might have a huge problem with it. And yet both of these Christians love the Lord and are striving to please him and live after him. Why do these things, why do they have different perspectives? Well, you got different spiritual maturity. You got past experiences. You got different backgrounds. I mean, a whole host of things. All of these things play a role into how individual Christians think about issues that are not clearly addressed in Scripture. And what we're going to see is oftentimes both sides have some growing to do on these issues and the way we approach them. For those that might be here, maybe you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, this might might be helpful uh, for your understanding in why you can look at different Christians and they don't all do the exact same thing in every situation. They're they're not all, there, there are certain consistent standards for all Christians, things that are clearly taught in God's word. 
But the Christian faith is not this rote, formulaic religion that we're just going through these motions, that we're just formulaically obeying these, these to-dos and these laws. No, God is not producing cookie-cutter followers, but he's calling us out. He's relating to us in our own personalities, and our own backgrounds, the things that we have come out of. Look, if we, if we shared our, all of our testimonies and what the Lord has done for us uh, leading up to salvation, we would, we would have all different perspectives and backgrounds about all kinds of different things. But when we keep the word at the center of that relationship, God speaks to us through his word and, and, and he begins to shape us and help us work through some of these things, not just to find the right answer, but, but how we can at the same time help one another to grow in their, in their Christian walk. So with all of that said, and, and that was a little bit of a long introduction to chapter 8, Let's consider the issue in the immediate context of, of what they're dealing with here and then, and then in the broader context for the Christian life. So as Christians, how do we handle meat, eating meat offered to idols and, and other gray area issues in our culture? And, and I think the, the answer to, uh, that Paul gives is helpful for, for just thinking through the broader um, situations that we face. In life, the decisions that we face on a day-to-day basis within the Christian life, um, these principles are going to help. But the immediate context, uh, thinking about issues of conscience, gray area issues. So, so over the next three weeks, I'm going to give you three principles, uh, and we're only going to look at one today. But three principles to consider when dealing with issues of con- conscience. Here's the first principle. I'm going to get a little political here. Okay. Love trumps knowledge, all right? Seven times in these verses, Paul uses some form of the word no. Now, in the Corinthian background, you have this this Gnostic influence in culture that we now see influencing the church of Corinth. Namely this, here's what was influencing the church. Knowledge is king. Knowledge is what matters. This this superseding knowledge that that some would tend to look down on others like, hey, we've arrived. We understand what the gospel is all about. We understand all these freedoms we have in Christ. And looking down at those who probably, or in their minds, don't, don't have, you're not quite up to the level of knowledge that I am. This was an influence of the culture. This superior spiritual knowledge. So some were here believing that they've moved past the elementary understanding of things and they've arrived at this higher spiritual knowledge. And you know what, if we're honest, we're, our culture is not that much different. We, we love knowledge. Uh, we look for the degrees and the titles behind somebody's name to see, like, is this person believable? Can I really trust them? What, what kind of credentials do they have? How many times have we heard over the last couple years, listen to the experts. We, we love to think about knowledge, to have knowledge. And to bring it down, if we're honest, we all become knowledge experts when we read an article online and we start reading the comment section. 
And we say, well, that's a stupid comment. That's a bad comment. I'm responding to that one because they need to know what I think about that issue. Here's where I found myself struggling, thinking through knowledge puffing up uh, throughout the last couple of weeks, I've, you know, I've talked with Adam, with others. Man, 1 Corinthians 8 and how that all ties into chapter 9 and 10 and all of these issues. And man, I, I can't seem to wrap my mind to some degree around like figuring all the details out and the nuances and having all the right answers. And, and even in the last couple of days, as I'm wrestling with this, the Lord started asking me, why, why are you so concerned about all of these these details, are, are you just wanting to show yourself knowledgeable as you share on Sunday morning? Something I had to wrestle through and, and confess in my own life. But we all think that we know or, or we want to know certain things. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, Dennis, though." Isn't greater knowledge a good thing? I mean, aren't we supposed to be growing in our knowledge and our understanding? Proverbs 1.5 even says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. It's wise to increase in knowledge. What we're going to find is Paul's talking about a specific kind of knowledge here. And there's actually 10 times in this letter that Paul rebukes the Corinthians. And here's the words, he uses. Do you not know? Is your knowledge still so elementary about the the, the true heart of the gospel that you don't know these things? So Paul wants them to know certain things. I want you to know certain things as you leave here today. So it's not just knowledge is bad, but Paul's going to address a certain type of of knowledge here as we get into verse number one. So concerning food offered to idols, notice what he says. We know, here's what we know, that all of us possess knowledge. Now this phrase, all of us possess knowledge, uh, this seems to be a saying that some within the church have adapted. Look, we've all, we all know this. We know what liberties we have in Christ. We know we can be doing these things. We've arrived. We have this knowledge. And so here, even as Paul starts out in his answer to this question about food, eating this food offered to an idol, he does so by showing them, notice how you've been influenced by the culture? Notice how this cultural thinking has crept into the church. And and cultural influence is always a challenge for the Christian church. Because we're called to engage our world, not isolate from it. And with that comes a huge danger that that the, the world does what? Starts creeping into the church. That's where Corinth is at. And so sort of in a... uh a mocking way, Paul says, hey, hey, we know, we know that all of us possess this knowledge, right? What kind of knowledge is he talking about? Well, he says in the next phrase, but this quote-unquote knowledge, this prideful spiritual arrogance does what? It puffs up, but love, in contrast, builds up. 
So Paul attacks this cultural influence that has come into the church of Corinth, and he points out where this knowledge that they are claiming to have falls short. This higher knowledge that, that, was, that, that was among them is causing them, their chests are puffing out, they're inflated with pride, that's the idea of the word. Instead of their focus being on others, their focus was on themselves. And we see that in this phrase, but love builds up. Their focus should have been on other people. They're being puffed up in pride. They should be building up their brother and sister in Christ. Focus is totally off. They have no concern for these Christians that in their mind, or maybe below them. They, they had a me and God spirituality. Just, just, about, just about me and him. Whatever they're struggling with, that's on their own. That's their problem. They got to work through those things. You see the difference here that Paul is, is mentioning? They had a knowledge that was not building up their fellow Christians and every, every issue that we deal with in the Christian life involves other people. So it's not only a matter of our spiritual knowledge and how does this affect me, but are we concerned about how we're building one another up? And that one another might be the person in your own home. But it's definitely as well people within our own church body. So Paul sets these two things uh, in, in contrast, uh, a, a prideful knowledge versus a knowledge that's coupled with love. Then in verse number two, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, if you, if you think that you know something, if you think you've arrived, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So Paul, what is he doing? Uh, he's going to challenge them. Do you even have real knowledge True biblical knowledge? If you think you've arrived in your knowledge, then you are further from the truth than you think. In chapter 13, what are we told? That until Christ comes, our knowledge is what? It's partial. But when he returns, then I will know in full. So we're never going to arrive. We're going to continue to grow in our knowledge of spiritual things. But true knowledge humbly understands, I haven't, I haven't arrived. I, I have some things I need to learn. I, have, I need to exercise humility in how I approach certain things. Now we're going to come into verse number three, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Paul says, but. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. God. So Paul, contrasting their idea of knowledge in verse number two with true knowledge in verse number three. And what is he saying? Any true knowledge is rooted in love. Love trumps knowledge, and they work actually together. And so Paul isn't holding love and and knowledge, when I speak of knowledge in this way, sound doctrine, if I could say it like that, he's not holding these two things at odds and saying these, these two things you know, don't go together, but instead he's saying any true, true knowledge 
uh, is going to result in love. And any true love is going to grow in true biblical knowledge. One thing flows from the other. Knowledge without love is no knowledge at all. Quick side note, just thinking about the, the whole book in its entirety, there are two wrong focuses that Paul has, is addressing in this book related to knowledge, of, knowledge and love. The first one is right here in chapter 8. Knowledge is king. Love doesn't matter. And we looked at in chapter 5, this other wrong focus that all we need is love and it doesn't matter if we even deal with sin within the church or have sound thinking through that issue. So again, the, these two issues, you know, I can't be bothered by sound doctrine. We just need love. And we have this enlightened spiritual knowledge. But love and knowledge go hand in hand. Let's look at, look, look at verse 3 a little more closely here. Because Paul's going to turn their thinking on their head. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the culture and the people within the church are saying, hey, I have this enlightened spiritual knowledge about God. And Paul then says, hey, it's not your knowledge about God that's most important, but it's your love for God that is most important. The focus isn't on our knowledge of God, but notice at the end of the verse, it's on his knowledge of us. To be known by God is more important than boasting about your knowledge of God. And doesn't this get to the heart of our salvation? You can have all the intellectual knowledge of God. You can know every Bible verse. All these Awana verses. Have the right Sunday school answers. You can go to church. Do, have, have all your I's dotted and T crossed for every theological issue that could ever come up. But this is not the way of salvation. Instead, Paul says, hey, a love for God demonstrates a heart of faith in God and brings us into a relationship with him to the point now where he knows us as, as children, as sons and daughters. Your love for God, not just your knowledge of God, is going to be the indication as far as, does he know you? That's a question for you to ask yourself. Does, does God know you this morning? Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 7. Notice what he says here. These words on the screen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Keep going. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, in your na and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works? And then I will declare to them, I never, what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
But Lord, didn't, didn't I attend all the classes? Didn't I attend all the services? Don't I have all these, this spiritual knowledge? I grew up in a Christian home. What was the answer, sadly, of the Lord? I, ne- I never knew you. See, we're not just being told in these verses to love each other better, but we're asked to examine whether or not we have a love for God and that he knows us. And this whole, this whole letter only makes sense in the instructions that Paul gives to these believers. And, and look, you're divided as a church. You need to love one another, but that only makes sense if first there is a love for God. Because we cannot truly love others unless we first love God. And if I could flip that around too, we, we cannot truly love God without a true love for others. And so really, what is Paul saying? Not, not much different than what Jesus has already said. He hasn't strayed at all from Jesus' teaching. The two greatest commands are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So as Paul addresses this, this very practical issue, eating meat offered to idols, he starts out by reminding them that what sound knowledge or sound doctrine looks like. And that's going to help them in their discernment of this issue. It's going to help you in your discernment of things that come up in your life. Should I, should I be doing this? Uh, I'm not really sure. Maybe the Bible does have an answer. We just haven't found it yet. But I, I, Okay, well, let's start here. Sound knowledge keeps others in mind and has a love for others. What I want to also mention here, Paul is not saying that knowledge is useless. In fact, he's instructing them at this moment that they would know, right? What, uh, there, there's a knowledge to be attained. Look at the end of verse number two, that little phrase, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So Paul anticipates you're going to be growing in knowledge. I want you to be growing in true knowledge. But this knowledge to be attained comes through Jesus Christ. Yeah, everything we're talking about, loving God and loving others, only comes through Jesus Christ. It's the only way we can love God. That's the only way we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ because the greatest display of love ever to be known to man is found where? At the cross of Christ where he in love laid his life down for you. By his sacrifice, we are reconciled to God and now able to love him. We are now known by him as sons and daughters. As I thought about the life of Christ and, and in particular, you know, his example to us, what is Jesus known for in his life? His love. And it's somewhat remarkable because as God, Jesus has infinite knowledge. He, he knew everything about everybody. But he didn't come to simply show off his knowledge. 
people. He came to show his love, not only in how he lived, but in how he died. And this is what he expects from his disciples. Notice John chapter 13 here behind me. This is what he expects from you, a new commandment I give to you. I want you to think about you. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. One more verse there. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, in our church today, we might not be dealing with meat being offered to idols. It may come a day that that's the case as, as our culture becomes more and more polytheistic, if not already there. But every day we're interacting with other people, with, with each other. And it's, it's not, let me say it like this, it's easy in a church that's made up of different age groups, ethnicities, vocations, uh, financial status, backgrounds, what, whatever the case might be. It, it's easy to become proud. It's easy to criticize each other. To think, man, I, I know more than they do about that issue. I can't believe that they would... I can't believe they'd be thinking along those lines related to, I don't know, any number of political issues uh, or, or, or other things that perhaps aren't addressed in Scripture. See, we don't need a degree to think we're smarter than someone else. To think that we've arrived. I just look at the varying opinions on COVID. I don't want to bring it up anymore. It seems like it's going away. But think about how the responses have come across between brothers and sisters in Christ on things that are, man, of, of least importance. Paul's concern for us as a church today isn't simply, and I, and I want to emphasize that word, it's not simply that we get the right answer on these gray issues, or have the right knowledge. I think he wants us to grow in those things. But more important than having the right knowledge, the right theology, is showing love to one another, building one another up in the knowledge that we do have. That should be our goal. That should be our aim. Then there are going to be times that you and I fail to show love to one another. But what do we do in those times that we fail? We, we remember and we look to our Savior who loved perfectly. He, he has already done it for me and I can come to him in forgiveness and strive then to continue to live and follow the example that he has set. Love one another as I have loved you. Listen, we're, I don't know if I'm approaching this the way that you expected but at the end of the day, the most important question being addressed here isn't, can I or can't I? But really, the most important question is, am I? Am I loving those around me? Am I building one another up? Am I puffed up in pride? 
Am I living with others in mind or am I just trying to get my own way? As long as things are going the way that I like them here in the church, then, then I'm content. Whether it's, whether it's gray issues, whether it's black and white issues, wh- whatever the case might be, anything we do, we first look to the cross of Jesus Christ and from there we make our decisions. Because we know nothing until we know the cross. The cross will strip you of your pride, but it will deepen your love for God. It will deepen your love for each other, which is exactly where we need to be as we make decisions in life on a daily basis. So let's live to build others up each day. Thank you.